Thank you so much to Liam and Duncan for that, for just beautifully reminding us of the gospel. I trust that you were encouraged by that as much as I was. Um, and it's good to be reminded of all that Christ has done for us, his suffering for us, his death and life for us. And that has tremendous implications for how we live, as I hope we see even this morning. If you do have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 17. We've been blessed the last few weeks uh, as Clinton has worked through Revelation, and I'm sure you've been encouraged by that, but unfortunately this morning you're stuck with me, and we're back in the series on the gospel and our world. We're carrying on this series, and so far we've looked at the gospel and lordship, and we've seen that Jesus indeed is Lord, and we live under his lordship. We are in Him, characterized by Christian virtues. We live under Him, following and obeying the Word. And we live for Him, seeking His glory. We've also looked at the Gospel and pluralism, recognizing that we live in a diverse world with different faiths, different peoples, yet we are called to lovingly and boldly declare Christ as the one Savior for all people. Now this morning we're moving on to what perhaps is the next logical topic, and that is the gospel and authority. See, if Jesus is indeed Lord, and if we live in a pluralistic society that oftentimes denies his lordship, then how do we relate to authorities who are over us? How do you relate to authorities that do not see his lordship, and who sometimes even will persecute us for our faith in Christ? And so it's those questions that our text this morning uh, seeks to answer and lead us toward. And so let's read our passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. This is God's word. Let's hear it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Only so far in the reading of God's word, may you reform our lives to truth. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we have the Lord's Day that has been set apart for us to rest in you. Not just to rest in you, but to be taught by you. And dear Lord, we just want to echo the psalmist where he Ask of you, let your light and your truth lead me. And we pray that your truth and light would lead us this morning to your holy hill, to your presence, so that we would sit at your feet, as it were, and hear what you desire of us. And dear Lord, that we would listen and obey and go out into this world designed to serve you recognizing that this is what your Lordship means in our lives. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us this morning. Give us attentive hearts, humble hearts, to see and understand what you have to say to us even this morning. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'll be honest, when I started prepping for this sermon a few weeks ago, I approached it with a lot of um, trepidation, with a lot of dread. Uh, The reason is, during COVID, uh, one of the most contentious topics has been the church's relationship to the state, to civic authorities. And we've we've seen different churches approach it differently. We've had those who've opposed government. We've seen some pastors and, and, and churches describe the government as a tyranny. And as a result, they refuse to heed regulations and abide by the laws set by our rulers. And in fact, they have often boasted and celebrated this resistance as if this resistance makes them more faithful than others. Some have even gone so far to say that if you heed the regulations of the government, then you lack faith and you're probably following a false shepherd. But there have been others like us who have sought to obey the government, who have sought to honor the government and to keep its regulations as far as possible. Yet despite this obedience and this submission, we've often been frustrated, haven't we, by our government. We couldn't meet and fellowship and worship in the ways we used to. And see, this frustration isn't helped by the fact that generally we have a very negative disposition toward government, and that's even long before COVID. Whether it be to incompetence or injustice or corruption, more often than not, our approach to civil authorities has been negative. And so I admit, given all of this, I I wasn't very excited uh, for this particular topic. But that changed when I read an article by Tim Tim Challies, uh, which both challenged me and encouraged me. Because he actually, believe it or not, says that we ought to give thanks to the government as a gift from God. He, he, He reminded me that generally the New Testament disposition towards civil authorities is positive. See, the civil authorities are ordained and instituted by God, and therefore the New Testament seems to imply that we must see government as fulfilling a good end, that we must cooperate supportively toward that good end, and that we must submit to their lawful rules, not simply be rebellious. See, Charlie points out, and rightfully so, That when we see the government's rule, we should see God's rule. When we think of civil authorities, we must have our minds turned to God's authority. Why? Because God has providentially instituted them, and He is pleased when we lawfully submit to them. That's the direction our text points us toward, isn't it? Look at the verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What institution is he talking about? He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the to governor sent by him. And so as we look at the passage this morning, as we consider this topic of the gospel and authority, I want us to see three things in this text. I want us to see the principle, the particulars, and the purpose of submission. Firstly, let's consider the the principle of submission. Oh, I need to put that on the screen for you guys. Wait, hold on. I'm getting there. There you go. 
I'm getting there. So the first thing I want you to see is the principle of submission. Uh, Verse 13 states very clearly, it gives this command, be subject. And this command reveals a, a general principle that ought to guide us as Christians. And notice Peter says, be subject to every human institution. That phrase refers to every institution and authority created by God for man, which applies then not just to the government as in the immediate context, but to to the workplace and the family and the church. In fact, if you look at the rest of the chapter, chapter 2 and 3, that's what you see. In chapter 2, 18, we're told that Christian slaves must be subject to their masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, Christian wives must be subject to their husbands. And in verse 7, husbands need to honor their uh, wives. And in in chapter 3, verse 8, although the word isn't there, the idea is there, Christians are called to be subject to one another. See, See, the idea is that Christians are called to be guided by this principle of submission. In fact, it's this principle that, is, that lies behind the fifth commandment. Uh, boys and girls, I, I trust that you know that honor your father and mother is a commandment not just for, you, for your parents and how you relate to them, but it's how we ought to relate to other authorities over us. I would even argue that verse 17 of chapter 2 explains how and where this principle must be applied. Look at what Peter says. Honor everyone... Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. See, these four commands address four spheres. The social, the ecclesial, the the spiritual, and the political. And in all of these spheres, we are called to give others their rightful due. And see, all of this is helping to, to describe and define what it means to be subject. It doesn't just mean to be submissive, it also means to honor others, to respect them, to be obedient. It means to not exalt self over and against others, but to esteem others. See, this principle is describing a posture of humility, of of respect, of, of gentleness, of meekness. It's the opposite of being proud and quarrelsome and rebellious. Listen to how Paul describes this principle in in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And then, then Paul describes what that looks like. He says, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. See, that's what it means to be submissive. Kind, gentle, respectful, meek, humble. But if you want an illustration of or an example of, of what this principle looks like in practice, then look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did he teach us to to give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God that which belongs to God, but Jesus himself evidenced this principle in his life. Do you remember when Jesus was handed over to Pilate to be crucified? Did he question and despise Pilate as a tyrannical leader? Did he quarrel and revile and act in defiance? No. 
He recognized and acknowledged Pilate's authority. In John 19, 11, he even says, You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. So he just recognizes this God-ordained authority, and as a lamb led to slaughter, he submits. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is the prime example of what it means to be submissive, especially in relation to civil authorities. In fact, Peter says, Jesus is an example we ought to follow. When he speaks of our slaves need to be subject to their masters, he says this in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. See, as Christians, we are called to follow the example of Christ. And that includes being submissive to authorities, even evil authorities who are unjust, knowing because we're doing it for the Lord. And remember, when Peter writes this, remember where he's at. Peter is writing this in Rome in the early 60s, and guess who's emperor at that time? Nero, yes, that Nero, the Nero who, who devastated the church, who fed Christians to lions, the same Nero who tradition tells us crucified Peter upside down. That's who's in charge. And God, through Peter, calls us to be subject. Now, why on earth would he want to do this? Why on earth would we want to be subject to ungodly and unbelieving authorities? Well, Peter tells us from the get-go, doesn't he? Be subject for the Lord's sake. We, we've said this already, but all authorities are instituted by God. We read Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. We are therefore so to subject ourselves to these authorities for the sake of the Lord. And here, I believe, lies the theological reason for this principle. We are commanded to be subject for the Lord's sake because the Lord despises lawlessness. He hates rebellion. Think of it this way. What is at the heart of sin? Is it not proud rebellion? Is it, not, is it not lawlessness? Is it not defiant opposition against God's law and His authority? Now, now the point I want you to get is this. If Christians are animated by a principle of rebellion and not the principle of submission, then they are displaying an attitude that God despises. Now, I'm not the only one who sees this. R.C. Sproul, the late great R.C. Sproul, makes a similar observation. He says, the plunge of the human race into disaster came as a result of an act of lawlessness. The refusal of Adam and Eve to be subject to their creator. Therefore, every time we do not submit to the rulers that are over all of us, we are casting our vote 
with lawlessness. And he says, however, every time we go out of our way to be submissive, we bear witness to the one whose laws stand above every law. Every time we obey our leaders, our employers, our school teachers, our parents, we give honor to Christ who reigns over all. So, beloved, realize the thing that pleases God, in, uh, that pleases God is submissiveness and submission in His people. Submission to the instructions that He has given and submission to the institutions that He has ordained. Now, if all of this is true, then the question for us becomes, is this principle evident in our lives? How do you as an individual relate to the authorities above you? Let's be honest, in our individualistic Western world, a real spirit of anti-authoritarianism has developed. Where we don't want others to tell us what to do. How dare they? I have my own rights, we often argue. We've even heard uh, in this church where youth and young adults refuse to, to get the vaccine, not because they are moved by conscience, which would be all right, but they simply just don't want others to tell them what to do. Be, be very careful of that attitude. Be very careful of that spirit, that anti-authoritarian spirit. It is a spirit of lawlessness which God despises. Now, I know whenever we speak about being submissive to our authorities, there comes a few questions that we need to answer. And so I want to move on to the next point, and that is the particulars of the submission. As we consider these particulars, let's ask a few questions, questions that we typically raise when we think about this topic. And so the first question is, is what about civil disobedience? Are we allowed as Christians to be disobedient to our authorities? And the answer is yes, but a careful yes. Remember, these authorities are instituted by God, and we submit to them for the Lord's sake. Yet, when these authorities themselves rebel against God, when, when they enact laws that demand disobedience to God, then we must disobey. We have a few examples of this in Scripture. Think of Daniel. Uh, when a law was made that, that demanded idolatry, when a law was made that perverted the worship of the true God, he rightfully disobeyed. Think of Peter himself who, who writes this letter. In Acts chapter 4, he's told to not preach the gospel. He's charged to not speak and teach the name of Jesus, yet Peter with a clear conscience says, no, he disobeys. So we then as Christians are allowed to disobey civil authorities, particularly when those authorities demand direct disobedience to the Lord. But, but again, we need to be very careful here. What is interesting to see in all of these examples and others of civil disobedience is that those who disobeyed still disobeyed with the spirit of submission. They weren't angry, they weren't arrogant, they weren't violent and seditious. They didn't celebrate their resistance as if this makes them more holy. No, they were meek. They were humble, they were gentle, they were respectful. When Daniel came out of the lion's den, what was his first words to the king? O king, live forever. 
When Peter was told to keep quiet, how did he respond? He said, whether it is right in, your, in the sight of God to listen to you or rather to God, you must decide, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. See, you don't get the sense here that Daniel or Peter disobeyed and they, they disobeyed with this boastful, celebratory way. In fact, quite the opposite. It should be a sad day, beloved, when we have to disobey. A sad day when, when government disobeys God and we are forced to disobey a servant of God. Now, now to emphasize this point, uh, we need to consider Acts 23. The first five verses, there we see in that passage that Paul is standing before the religious leaders. And after one of the people commands that Paul be struck on the face, Paul responds this way in verse 3. He says, God is going to strike you. You whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order to strike me? Quite harsh, right? Not very submissive. Listen to verse 4 and 5. Those who stood by and said, would you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said this, and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See, Paul, you acts belligerently against someone who, who has performing justice. Yet when Paul realizes that this someone is in authority, Paul immediately apologizes. Why? Because a belligerent attitude, a rebellious and reviling spirit is never appropriate for Christians. See, there's a way to disobey the authorities and still practice this principle of submissiveness, of still being meek and gentle and kind. Now, how, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because Christians are animated by different principles. We are in Christ and by Christ, we are shaped by Christ-like virtues. Throughout the New Testament, we are told to die to self and to live for Christ, to put off the old man in sin and to put on the new man in Christ. And that new man in Christ is not marked by rebellion, but grace. Paul says in Colossians 3.12, Put on then, as God's chosen and holy ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. He even says in Colossians 4, 6, Paul reminds us what he had to learn. That is, let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how, to, or how you ought to answer each person. So even if we are to disobey the authorities, we ought to do so for Christ, with Christ-like character. But let's move on to the second particular, uh, the second question that we typically ask is, what about social engagement? Just because we must be submissive to the authorities, does that therefore mean that we need to be uh, passive? Like some of the early Anabaptists believe that you aren't allowed to get involved in society and government. And the answer is no, a very hard no. Realize that the authorities have a particular God-ordained purpose. Verse 14 says, to, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. See, our authorities, our government is instituted by God to punish injustice and violence and evil and to promote or praise justice and peace. Which is all to say, civil authorities have been called to seek the public good. 
Now, now why, why bring this up? Well, for this reason, Christians in obedience to God and in cooperation with civil authorities must be good citizens that also seek the public good. Now, where do I get that from? Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Realize that at the time, Christians were being slandered as rebels because they wouldn't worship the pagan gods in their pagan temples. And Peter, in response, says, silence their accusations. How? By doing good. Doing good deeds. And what exactly are these good deeds? Are they private deeds? No. They're they're public deeds for all to see. Good deeds that benefit those around us in society. Listen to John Calvin on this. He explains it this way. In this expression, doing good, Peter includes all the duties of humanity and kindness which we ought to perform to our neighbors. And in these is included obedience to the magistrate without which concord or unity among men cannot be cultivated. What's he saying? He's saying be submissive citizens that seek the public good. Think of the exiles in Jeremiah's day. As exiles in Babylon, what did God call them to do? Well, in Acts, or in Jeremiah 29, 7, he, he calls upon them to seek the welfare of the city. And guess what, beloved? That's what God is calling us in First Peter. It is God's will that us as exiles in this world seek the welfare of the city, seek the public good. See, the point is Christians are called to be socially engaged. We need to see, when we see poverty and and sickness and abandonment and suffering and injustice, we should seek that which is good. Which includes sometimes supporting the government when they promote the good, and even when the government fails, we step in to help where we can. I, I love this quote by Sproul. He says this, The church is not the state, but it is the conscience of the state. And it is the conscience that cannot aff- and it is and it is a conscience that cannot afford to become seared or silent. And we'll see now why this matters, why seeking the public good matters. But the third question we need to ask is what about Christian liberty? What about Christian liberty? Now some might be tempted you to think that that because they have liberty because they have freedom as a right, particularly freedom in Christ, they need not be subject to civil authorities, especially not if these authorities are evil and wicked and unjust. That's at least how the Jews in Peter's day thought. They believe, much like us today, that their freedom is their right. That they have one God, one king, and that's the Lord, and therefore they will not acknowledge the subjection of others. They will not submit to the rule of Rome. And we know that what happened historically is that they revolted against Rome, and Rome wiped the floor with them. In 70 AD, they were conquered, and Jerusalem was, was destroyed. And in verse 16, Peter is addressing that temptation. That temptation to use your freedom as a license not to be submissive, but to sin, to be rebellious. Look at what he says, verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
what's he saying? He's saying we have liberty and freedom. We've been given liberty not to sin, not to rebel, not to dishonor others who are over us and around us. But we've been given freedom to be obedient in serving the Lord. I I, I love this quote by William Barclay. He says this, Christian freedom does not mean being free to do as we like. No, it means being, being free to do as we ought. That ought, in this context, is being subject to authorities for, public, for the public good. See, our liberty in Christ is not used to be used as an excuse. No, quite the opposite. It should motivate being submissive. Because we submit ourselves to the authorities for the Lord's sake as the Lord's servants. I think of how Paul encourages the slaves in Colossians. He tells them to be obedient and submissive. Why? Because they are ultimately serving the Lord. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Verse 24 Knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. See, the gift of Christian liberty is to be used in service and obedience. Service and obedience, which includes being subject to the authorities for the public good and the glory of Christ. So so those are some of the, the particulars, the challenges that we typically need to discuss when we talk about this topic. But let me conclude this morning with the purpose of this submission. What is the end goal of all of this? What is, why must we be cautious about civil disobedience? Why must we seek the public good by doing good deeds? Why must we use our liberty not for sin but service? Or to ask it differently, why should submission to the authorities be seen as something good and positive? Well, the answer is this, the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says in the passage preceding our text. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice, Christians are are exiles in this world. This world is not our home. Yet, we have been set apart in this world to be holy and honorable. Holy because we put to death sin, sin that wages war against us. We, We do not give in to the sinful and rebellious flesh. But we're also called to be honorable. Honorable because we give ourselves to, to good deeds, to good works. Even in the midst of opposition and persecution, we must do good. And by the way, just as an aside, when persecution comes, what must be our motive? Good deeds. That's what the point is here. So see, we are called to, to do good, which as we saw in this text, includes being submissive citizens that seek the good of the public. Now, what is the end goal of, of this good submissiveness as good citizens for the public good? What is the goal? It is the glory of God. Imagine with me for a second what the world sees and what the world thinks when they see in churches a spirit of rebellion that resists the laws of the government, 
Laws that aren't direct persecution, but laws that seek the public good. Yes, we might question these laws. Yes, they might be imperfect and inconsistent. Yes, the laws inconvenience our freedoms and limit our liberty. Yet with all their faults, they seek still the public good. What must the world think when they see defiant Christians, defiant churches, who apparently are more concerned about safeguarding their liberty than caring for the public good? Let me illustrate this way. We had a family in our previous church, a godly family. This is a family every church would want. Godly, upright, children who love the Lord, who serve in ministry. And they came to us because in their church, before they joined us, uh, they were anti-mass and anti-vaccine and anti-all the regulations. And this family, out of a concern for their good and the good of others, decided to keep masks on. And the church discarded him. It was a sign for them of a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. And that family, a godly family, actually left. Now imagine with me an unbelieving family going in there. An unbelieving family perhaps who through COVID has lost a loved one and they're going to a church because they want hope. But instead they find hard, rebellious, defiant Christians. Do you think God is honored there? May I suggest you a church with a rebellious spirit that cares little for the public good ultimately robs God of the honor that is due to his name. But, but again, that still raises the question, how does good deeds that seek the public good, how does that lead to the honor and glory of God in the lives of unbelievers? Well, the answer is the gospel. Peter says in our text that our good deeds will lead to Gentiles, that is, unbelievers, glorifying God. And notice, it isn't merely saying that God will be glorified in them. It says that they themselves will glorify God. And the innuendo is that somewhere along the line, after seeing the good deeds of the Christians, these unbelievers have come to a saving faith. How is that possible does faith not come by hearing and hearing the word of Christ? Yes. And the implication is that our good deeds need to be accompanied with good news. Our good deeds are never silent. Now we ought to be speaking of what we have seen and heard as we seek the good of those around us. Now, I don't have time for it this morning, but in chapter 3, Peter points out that our good deeds, which flow from honoring Christ as Lord, will provoke a response, a response that needs to be answered with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that says that there is a good God who loves and who cares, the good news that says that this God has sent His Son to be our Savior. A Savior who subjected himself to evil authorities. A Savior who subjected himself to persecution and suffering for us. And who subjected himself even to death upon a Roman cross. Why? To save people like you and me. To save us from the rebellion of our sin and the consequences of our defiance, which is death. See, our good deeds must be accompanied with good news. And so to circle back to our question, what is the purpose of the submission? 
Why must we see submission as ultimately good? The answer is, for the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, is this the bigger picture that we have when it comes to our society and the authorities around us? Do we see our response to them and our relationship to them as an opportunity to make much of Christ? To seek that which is good so that people would ask for the hope that is within us. And so that we would point them to the Savior of their souls. I I pray, I really pray that we would be good deeds people because we are good news people. People who live for the glory of God in our world. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you have called upon us and commanded us to be subject to the authorities around us. You have called upon us to, out of a respect and fear and love and obedience to you, to respect, honor, and revere those around us. We do pray, dear Lord, help us and forgive us where we've allowed this principle and spirit of lawlessness and rebellion to creep in. Where we've taken our liberty as, a, as an excuse and as an opportunity to sin and rebel against you. Oh dear Lord, we pray that you'd have mercy upon us. That you'd help us to be submissive to our authorities in meekness and gentleness and tenderness and love. For the ultimate end of, of glorifying you, of, of making much of you. And dear Lord, we pray, help us in this. With all of this in mind, we do want to again pray for our authorities. We want to pray for our authority, for, for our leaders, for our rulers. We pray that they would be wise and godly, that they would make decisions that seek the public good, that they would withhold or, 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 or punish injustice and evil and violence, and that they would promote that which is good and honorable. We pray above all that they would come to know you and serve you, and that they would serve out of a love for you. Oh, dear Lord, help us in this. Help us to approach uh, our, 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 our government with the spirit of submissiveness. And even, dear Lord, when we have to be disobedient, even when we have to go against laws that command disobedience to you, we pray that you'd give us a gentle spirit, boldness to speak the truth, yet speak it in love, with grace. Oh, dear Lord, help us in this, we pray. And help us to do all of this, again, not for ourselves, but for you. So that people would see something different about us. That we are your people, set apart for good deeds, for the glory and honor of your name. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.